This episode of Clear and Vivid with Conan O'Brien is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Discovery. He's an actor, a former Marine, and a self-taught expert of high-performance karate. I'm talking about Rob Riggle, and now he's on a new mission. From searching for the Holy Grail to uncovering Atlantis and more, Rob's setting out on an epic adventure, taking on one global mystery after another. Rob Riggle, Global Investigator. Premiering Sunday, March 8th at 10 on Discovery. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I am not the great host with a capital H who's sitting back in my chair and the guest needs to prove themselves to me. Even if I've been around for 26 years, I have to roll up my sleeves and get down in the mud with them as a fellow human being. And I think that's key this sense of parity, that we're in this together, we're both humans, and let's try and figure this out. Conan O'Brien has hosted a late-night talk show for 4,000 hours, and by now you'd think he'd be kind of sick of talking. But he came to our studio in Manhattan and sat down for a conversation that was both fun and thoughtful. I'd been on his show a couple of times and I ran into him on the street once, so I didn't really know Conan. But I sensed there was a serious person behind the funny. And I saw how astute he was right at the beginning when he started by flattering me. Well, I'm so glad to have you here today because I admire you very much. Oh, well, thank you very much. Mutual. I'm just, uh, it's a big deal. Uh, Our ships have crossed uh, a few times, Pat, and and it's always been a big, big deal for me. So uh, thrilled to be here. And, And I... I really love the way you went from the way the public heard this story was you went from writing mm-hmm. to performing mm-hmm. zippity doo. Yeah. Did you, was it really as, as quick as that? Did you just jump off the cliff and go into performing or did you work out a little bit in clubs I had, or something? I had done improv, uh, improvisational work, uh, and I had gotten up on stage many times, but yes, it's a, it is a fair characterization to say for me to have gotten the job that I got based on uh, the skill set that I had at the time was absurd. It really was absurd. And um, Lorne Michaels said, this kid has something and if he can get the time, I think he could really be great. But uh, it was... Um, a huge leap of faith on his part. Were you writing for Saturday Night Live then? No, I was writing for The Simpsons. I had written for Saturday Night Live and I was always the writer. And this is kind of a tradition. You know, Mel Brooks had been the writer that performed in front of the other writers and acted things out yeah. and they put them on. And, and did you do that? I was the guy who was always up on a table. Or, <laughs> tap uh, dancing, the light tap dancing. Yes, tap dancing and doing things. And, and the way that I would write his sketches, I had to kind of act it out. And I would sometimes do things just to make other people laugh. And they would say, well, that could be a sketch. And I'd say, you know, I think you're right. And then I would, so so that was how I found a lot of things. But uh, to go from where I was in 1993, in April of 93, to uh, to go from that stage uh, and and go right on to being on television every night for an hour was insane. It was insane. 
Uh, and I, I, to this day, I don't know uh, how we pulled it off. Uh, and I think we just, I have to give a lot of credit to dumb luck. I think they, I think they wanted to cancel me. I think, in fact, there was a meeting where they did cancel me, but they didn't. But <laughs> they, they didn't tell you. No, no, but they, they, <laughs> they forgot to write it down. Uh, no, they did. I think they did cancel me at one point, and then they said, you know, we don't have the replacement ready yet, so let's give them another couple of months until the replacement's ready. But then, by then, the numbers had ticked up a bit, and we were, you know, but it was just, uh, you know, skin of our was teeth. Was there a moment early on where you said, oh, oh, I get it. Here's what I have to do. There was a moment early on where I realized um, universally the critics said this is this guy's terrible. Everyone said this is no good, except for some reason the critic, there was a critic for the New York Times, I think named John O'Connor, who wrote a really lovely piece that said, there's a fine madness here. <laughs> And um, I think he acknowledged the rough edges, but said there was a fine madness and he could really see how this was very different from what had come before and what Letterman had done. And this could be really special. Um, no one agreed with him. And I think maybe he probably changed his mind <laughs> and said, you're right. You couldn't get it back from the copy yeah, boy. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Now I didn't mean Conan O'Brien. I meant <laughs> I meant Conan O'Ryan. Uh, so, so um but I was filled with a lot of despair. But what I knew was um, I was working in front of a live audience and every night things got a little better and they would laugh more and more. And I remembered thinking, if it's working in this little room, maybe I just need to focus on that and the rest will seep out through the so magic you, of television. Now that's interesting. It sounds like you're saying you began to focus more on the people in front of you yes. instead of thinking about, oh, the camera's picking this up, I'll play yeah. to the camera. Yes, and I started to just, um, it wasn't just the, the people in front of me, but I will, so much, you know, comedy, so much is just, uh, and, and acting, I'm sure, I'm not an actor, but is being in the moment and being truthful to that moment. Yeah. And so I felt that if I could get in there, if, if I could just tune out all the noise and follow my instincts, which I did have faith in, uh, then it would work. And now you've been on the air as a host of a late night talk show longer than anybody doing it now, right? Yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah, I went from, and you know what I found is interesting. It's been, I've been on 26 years. And you know, when I started, I started just after Johnny Carson retired. And you remember he did 30 years and everyone yeah. acted like it was the moonshot. You know, who, that will never be done again. He was on, on TV for 30 years. Um, you know, and I think Dave subsequently did, I, th I believe, 33 years it, to just, to be it, I had to be reminded that I was at 26 and <clears throat> it feels silly. Uh, and one of the big things that keeps occurring to me is that I went from being the young punk and then overnight, I wanna say about five years ago, I became the grand old man. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, well, there was no in between. Do you know what I mean? And then yeah. all the questions are, so you're still doing that. Do you think you're going to keep doing it? And they talk to you like you're, you know, would you like some help to the bathroom? <laughs>
I'm interested to know, because you, you've now, in these 26 years, interviewed mm-hmm. an awful lot of people. Yeah. And our, you know, and our show here is a lot about relating and communicating. Yes. So yeah. how, how you relate to your, your guests, your interviewees really interests me. Do you have, do you have a philosophy of interviewing? Do you have a theory about it? Uh, I do. One thing that I think is really important is it's your job if you're interviewing someone to find out what's going to kindle my natural curiosity. And so you need to dig for that sometimes. And there are a lot of people where it's easy. Gee, what is it about, you know, Alan Alda that's interesting? It's, it's all right there. It's present. I'm really aware of your work. I've been watching you my whole life. And I think, yes, there's so much I want to talk to him about. That's easy. There are other people, uh, because it's a volume business, and mm-hmm. I'm talking to a lot of people. And if you think about it, I've done over 4,000 hours of television. And if there's three people on a night, that's a couple oh. hundred people, I think. I have never did well in math, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's almost a couple hundred. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's in the high 80s. Uh, but the um, you can't... Let's face it. You're going to be talking to people who uh, don't have much to say. There's not much. and you've And it's my job to prepare and find out, well, wait a minute, no, where's this kid come from? And really try. Now, sometimes you can fail to connect, but I think that's the first job. And the second thing that's very important to me is my philosophy has always been, I'm not better than the, the person I'm talking to. There needs to be some humility involved. I need to try and relate to them and like in improvisation, make it work with them. Mm-hmm. I am not the great host with a capital H who's sitting back in my chair and the guest needs to prove themselves to me. Even if I've been around for 26 years, I have to roll up my sleeves and get down in the mud with them as a fellow human being. And I think that, I, I think that's key, this sense of parity that we're in this together we're both humans, and let's try and figure this out. Yeah, one of the ground rules of improvisation is that you need to make your partner look good. Yes. Not use them for your own purposes. Yeah. And uh, it's especially difficult if a if somebody who's devoted to comedy is, is interviewing somebody and they feel that any way they can get a laugh out of them yes. or at their expense. At their expense. Yeah, it's not such a good... Uh, approach, because the other person looks like a shlemiel. A shlemiel, which is an old uh, Irish term. It's a Gaelic term. <laughs> I come from the shlemiels, the shlemiel mountains in north of Dublin. <laughs> <laughs> so the thing that I'm thinking of is, I've only been on stage with you, and now we're in another interview situation. Yeah. I, there are things, uh, let me ask you what you're passionate about. I want to know you as a person. Um, well, I'm always was very passionate about uh, comedy. Uh, just something that I took very, very seriously. And which So does that mean you analyzed it and studied it? Do you have a theory about what makes things funny? Why do people laugh? I used to think about it. I think to my credit, I didn't overthink it, but I sucked it up like a sponge. And when I was a kid, I watched all the old stuff, all the new stuff. I watched everything and I paid attention to 
you know, my father, I remember very early on, took me to see, a, a, I think, Modern Times, Charlie Chaplin movie. Mm, yeah, it's a great movie. And uh, so I paid attention. And then I saw the Marx Brothers and I, I really sucked that up and I, and, and W.C. Fields I loved. And then I learned that I liked, although I myself am a sentimental person, I like it when my comedy is not sentimental. So mm -hmm. I started to prefer, I liked W.C. Fields. I preferred him to Chaplin and I prefer, I, I loved Chaplin's artistry, but I didn't want anything too poignant in my comedy. And, and, and Fields and the, had a caustic side. Yeah, him. I mean, and, and he was just completely unrepentant. And, <laughs> yes. and I love that. And I loved uh, his, you know, you had to really listen for his muttering asides. And the, keep in mind, this is the 1970s when I'm, I'm supposed to be listening to Cheech and Chong and I'm watching these old uh, movies. And so I'm, you were exploring the basic foundation of comedy in a way it sounds In a way, like. I just, and I didn't even know that. It's just that back then in the pre-Netflix uh, cable era, growing up in Brookline, Massachusetts, there, what they would show on the uh, UHF channels, on channel 56 and channel 38, for content was pretty much old stuff. It's mm. what they had yeah. and it's what they filled time with. So on a Saturday or Sunday, I could see Horse Feathers. I could see Night at the Opera. I could see Yankee Doodle Dandy with uh, with Jimmy Cagney. And I just sucked up all these old rhythms. Then the other thing I realized is that I was watching a lot of Warner Brother cartoons because they would show those on Saturday mornings. So Bugs Bunny, Road Runner, and all that stuff was made by master animators and joke writers in the 40s and, and 50s, and, and they were made for the theater. So they're made for adults. So I wasn't watching kids' comedy. I mean, you'd think a Bugs Bunny cartoon is for kids. You look at them, they're really hilarious and beautifully spaced out and timed, and they're for, they were shown in theaters as shorts before the main picture mm -hmm. in the 1940s and 50s, and they were meant for adults. And if kids are there too, fine. But that's how I learned I learned so much about timing from mm. that. And so there's all this old stuff I was getting uh, a sense of timing from, I think before I found the new stuff. And did you, do you think that had any um, help for you? To, did it make it easier for you to, to write for the symptoms having or seen having so many sort of, cartoons? Yeah, I think I just picked up, um, I think by the time that... I started to, uh, you know, I wrote a lot of comedy in college for the college humor magazine. And then by the time that I got out um, at 22, I think I had an advantage in that some people decide I might wanna try getting into comedy when they're 22. And I realized by the time I was 22, I had been thinking and writing comedy for a lot of years. Mm. So I had this, and and doing it for my friends or, uh, so I had a head start. Do you know what I mean? I had a, uh, so I was very passionate about, you know, I've thought about this a lot lately, but I think in my twenties, my teens and my twenties and my thirties, I just spent so much energy trying to think about trying to make people laugh and, and in realizing on like a Darwinian when something doesn't work, you just drop it. When something does work, you you so hone it. So it sounds like you're describing an intuitive approach to it. Right? Yeah, I didn't and like. Yet, and yet, I also sense that you you've analyzed it a little bit too. Yeah, I I do analyze it some, but then I get worried when I analyze it too yeah, much because yeah. it's like holding onto fog. If you squeeze it, it just goes out between your fingers and it's gone. 
What makes us laugh? Do you have, do you have any idea? You know, it's so funny. Uh, I think um, for me, it's images. Some people are verbal and there's a verbal dexterity to what they're saying. And I, I have some verbal dexterity, but I think the thing that I always was able to do was come up with a silly image. Of a, a, a verbal, Ver, yeah, ver, verbally calling verbally, up an image. Verbally calling up an image that everyone can see. Um, well, here's an example. Uh, I wrote a sketch. This is when Oprah first, she had went on an extreme diet, and this is back in the late 80s, and she lost some incredible amount of weight, and it was big news everywhere. And she <laughs> debuted, you know, she walked out, and she was wearing skinny jeans, and she had just completely transformed herself, and everyone went crazy about, uh, you know, Oprah's massive weight loss. And I thought, it's very cartoonish, this is how my brain works. I thought, wouldn't it be funny if we did a sketch where someone plays Oprah and she comes out and she's really skinny and she's talked about how she's lost all the weight. And then you see her point of view of people, people are asking questions in the audience and she's answering them. But then you see from her point of view and um, getting uh, special uh, styrofoam heads made, we turn their heads into hamburgers and French fries <laughs> and milkshakes. And it was this very silly cartoonish idea. And so I pitched that. They said, yes, we went ahead and made the, the costumes. And it's very hard to do live. You'd have to cut to someone that ask a question. You'd cut to the person playing opera. Then you'd see uh, the Oprah starting to get distracted and you'd cut back to the person with a hamburger on their head and it's that she is starving herself and, this yeah. is, and, and she can't concentrate. And then you see the whole show break down because she's saying, <laughs> she I want to I want to bite. <laughs> <laughs> that person in the I third row. Bite, I want to bite your head. Uh, and uh, people were, and then you cut back to them without it and they're saying, pardon me? What are you saying? <laughs> and so that was very, uh, I would say that's very me is I like to come up with the image. So if you and I were having a conversation um, and uh, you mentioned that you hadn't eaten lunch, I might verbally say, um, is my head turning into a roast beef sandwich right now? And it's just a quick verbal thing, but it's the same idea of it's not, it's not that I said anything verbally dexterous, is that I put an image out there yeah. and it cuts right to the chase and people, People love an image. They love an image in their head. And if you can get it there quickly and you can say it just right so that they have that image in their head and they've downloaded it right into their cortex at the right moment, they you can get them in a way that a sly pun won't. Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, and puns are peculiar because some of them are really laborious and unpleasant to, to hear. And then yes. some of them are classic and yes. have meaning. Yes. I like it when they have meaning. Yes, I like it when they mean something and, and when they line up perfectly, you appreciate the workmanship and the craftsmanship mm -hmm. and you go, oh, wow. That, I, don't, I don't know that you get a belly laugh mm -hmm. from them. Um, what's, the, what's the great one? Is it uh, someone at the Algonquin round table? There's that old saying, you can lead a horse to water, yeah, but you, you can't make a drink. You can and, lead a horde to... A horde to culture, but, but you, you can't, can't make, make them think. think. And you're just like, okay, that's a 10 out of 10. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. I'm not sure I'm on the floor laughing, <laughs> but I'm appreciating the beauty of it. <laughs> right.
When we come back, I'm curious about Conan's interviewing style, and he has a good analogy to describe what he does. But first, you have to listen to this short break. Be back in a minute with Conan. He's an actor, a comedian, a writer, and a director, and he's also a former Marine and a self-taught expert of high-performance karate. I'm talking about the one and only Rob Riggle. And now to add another feather to his multi-hyphenated cap, he's taking on a new mission as an explorer traveling the globe in search of answers to some of the world's greatest mysteries. Using his self-proclaimed extensive knowledge of everything, he'll team up with experts and scholars to tackle the biggest, most legendary challenges he's ever faced. His daring adventures will take him near and far, from traveling to Scotland in search of the Holy Grail to diving in Greece for the lost city of Atlantis, and jetting off to Key West on the hunt for a pirate's hidden treasure. Rob will put his skills and bravery to the test, doing whatever it takes to search for the truth, one global mystery at a time. Rob Riggle, Global Investigator. A new show premiering Sunday, March 8th at 10 on Discovery. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack and save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joes, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses, plus updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Conan O'Brien. When you were talking about interviewing, it, it occurred to me to ask you how much you were prepared for each one. Did you? I can't remember. Did you do yeah, I a would, pre-interview? Somebody would pre-interview yes, the guest? they'd do a pre-interview. And would you stick to that? Would you have a list of questions? or How, how much did you improvise? Yeah, my motto or my what I learned was, I think my analogy that works is a quarterback has a plan, calls mm. a play. But two-thirds of the time in the play as it unfolds, the the hole, the opening, is supposed to be over to the right. That's where the opening's supposed to be. But so often in football, the opening isn't, they always say the hole isn't where it's supposed to be. So a good quarterback says, okay, you know, that tackle didn't work. There's no opening over there. I'm gonna 
dodge off to the left, wait, no, I'm not, I'm running off to the right, I'm gonna throw it, or I'm gonna run, or I'm gonna- well, so, I'm gonna go back to the showers I'm gonna where go, it's safe. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna go hide under the bench. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, to me, um, what I like, what I believe in at the end of the day is have a plan and then be more than willing to throw it out the window. When I did uh, the Johnny Carson show once or twice, mm -hmm. it really surprised me that it was so regimented. It seemed to me that the more money that went into a talk show, the more regimented it was. Right. And they would pre-interview me. And then right before I went on, somebody would come up to me and say, now, Johnny's going to ask you this and you answer this. Really? Yeah. No, we never did that. This uh, is what you told us in the pre-interview, and this will be good for your answer. Yeah. <laughs> I was astonished. Yeah. I I mean, we never, we never did that. And I do find that most, you know, sometimes the uh, prepared stuff is really the best. And then so often going off book, uh, if you see an opportunity... If someone slightly misspeaks and you say, pardon me, wait, what was that? Yeah. No, I just said, I sh probably shouldn't mention this, but, <laughs> but my wife, and you're like, well, what, is, what is it about your wife? And then you, the next thing you know, and it's not that it's salacious, but then you're getting something, you can feel the energy in the room. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's alive. Humans, uh, I talk about humans as if I'm not one of them. <laughs> These humans have Well, observed. I was wondering that since you came in. Yeah, I know, I'm an ethereal figure, but there's something about, people that I find miraculous. And I th this relates to what you're, what really I, I think an important theme of your podcast is how do we interact? How do we communicate? How do we, how do we connect? Um, one of the things that has most impressed me in 26 years and 4,000 plus hours of doing these shows, I'm always amazed that audiences know when something is organic, they just do. So we've done, I've done plenty of, heard plenty of prepared stories that do fine. They do great. But when somebody comes on a show and something starts to unfold and it starts to come off the rails and get uh, purely improvisational, audiences smell it the way a wolf can smell blood. Mm -hmm. They just do. That's something that's never been explained to me, but they know it. They just know it and there's, it's electric. And my favorite moments, and I realized this once, is that I was looking at the best of uh, Johnny Carson. They were for years, I think, uh, selling them. You know, you can get the best of Johnny Carson and it would be a late night infomercial. And they would show all these clips. Almost every clip was something going wrong, mm. a mistake. It was Johnny messing up the monologue uh, you know, the boom came down too far and he grabbed it and said, we need to clean up in aisle four here at Walmart, you know, and, <laughs> but, and uh, you know, Don Rickles breaking something accidentally, uh, something smashing, um, you know, a dog failing to do what it was supposed to do in the uh, Ed McMahon Alpo commercial. So Johnny wanders in on it, comes in on his knees and pretends to be a dog at, on the spur of the moment, uh, covering mistakes. That's when people erupt and those become the classic moments. The, the famous one is the uh, Ed Ames tomahawk throw yeah. on The Tonight Show when he, someone was doing an ax demonstration and threw it at a silhouette and it actually hit right where the crotch is and at an angle that created a, suddenly an obscene 
and uh, pretty much genetically, uh, I mean, uh, anatomically accurate sculpture, <laughs> three-dimensional sculpture, a uh, phallic sculpture. And this is 1962 and the audience is going in howling because it's been, a, it's a mistake. Yeah. And Ed Ames, the tomahawk thrower, goes to try and remove it, and you see Johnny stop him. He grabbed him by the arm. He grabbed him and pulled him back. He was also timing the laugh. Yes. Because he knew that if he if he re continued to just stand there and react to what had just happened, yes. the laugh would build, which it did. Which it did, and it's something he knew intuitively, and he also learned from his idol, Jack Benny, which is... Wait. Wait. And I've seen... Uh, in my career, um, God bless, uh, whatever, sh I was watching all this stuff as a kid and noticing that, waiting and letting them laugh and letting them read your deadpan mm -hmm. reaction is so much better than talking. Yeah. And you still want the good line at the end and, and Johnny had it then, he said, welcome to Frontier Briss. And that got a huge, Huge laugh. It. Yeah, but he knew, uh, and Jack Benny knew, you just wait. You know what I'm, what I'm noticing as we talk? It's your hair. Yes. I get the impression that when you're on the show, you comb your hair in a deliberately peculiar way. In real life, it doesn't look anything like that. In real life, it looks like a regular person's head. Mm -hmm. Now, and, and when I watch it on television, mm -hmm. you seem to have this very high pompadour as if you're playing a character. Yeah. What, I, is, what is that? Well, is first it just of all, me? Uh, no, you use the word peculiar and I take offense. <laughs> uh, you know, I didn't come all the way down here to be told that my hair is peculiar. No, not uh, at the moment. At the moment, it's just odd. No, no, but on television, uh, <laughs> yeah. it, it is a... Um, my goal was for it to look like a Belgian pastry. <laughs> it's in a shop window that yeah. you want to take a bite out of. Uh, you know, it's funny when I first, you know, why does, why do these things happen? Uh, something along with my interest in comedy that started to grow is my interest in uh, music from the 1950s. Uh, and early Elvis, not Elvis once, you know, once he went to, uh, you know, the big time, but when he's first made his recordings in, in Memphis, I got really interested in that kind of music and playing that kind of music and seeing if, singing, seeing if I could sing that rockabilly kind of music and uh, Gene Vincent. And I don't know why, again, I was out of time because now it's the 1980s. I'm not supposed <laughs> to be listening to that, you know, but, I'm, but that's what I'm listening to. And I became a little obsessive about it. And so I grew my sideburns long and I realized that my hair had the ability to, it has a, a wave in it and I can, I could pile it up and I don't know why it's compulsion. It's compulsion, but I did it. And I think I turned myself into a little bit of a, a character. So you, you, you continue to do it deliberately as a kind of character. I, well, so, you know, and it's not even really a choice. It was like a compulsion. I just don't <laughs> know why, but I, it's, maybe it's an obsessive compulsive, but I would pile my hair up and go out. And if you look at, I mean, it used to be far crazier, but if you look at some of the early shows from the 90s, um, it is a 3D structural marvel. It is- <laughs> It's one of the wonders of the world. It's a cantilevered, you know, it's something that you'd have to have architects come in and say, we need, it's load bearing, it's coming out at an 80 degree angle. Um, 
You could hang Christmas ornaments off of it. It was an absurdity, and I don't know what I was doing. Uh, it has calmed down a lot since then. Uh, well, you know, it reminds me of W.C. Fields. One of the things about him is that he created a character that was impossible to imitate without stealing from him. Yes. And nobody combs their hair that way. And Well, for good reason. Nobody, yeah. everybody wanted to dress like Johnny Carson. Yeah. And he had a line of suits and everyone wanted to be like Johnny Carson. Uh, I decided to stake out territory that nobody would want. And <laughs> the hair... Um, <laughs> Did it have something to do with the character you were playing? Did you think of playing a character uh, as the talk show host? You know, I think... I had an idea. It's not so much that I would be a character, but I think on some level, there was part of me that thought it's important to be easily caricatured if you're in this business, because there's lots of people in comedy. And so I had, um, there's no mistaking me. I'm easily drawn. A child could draw a Conan O'Brien caricature very easily because it's uh, a couple of freckles uh, beady little eyes, and then uh, this massive dessert on my head. And yeah, there are Conan t-shirts that are just the silhouette of the hair. And I thought, yeah, okay. I see I see on some level why I did that. Just, you know, let's just make it uh, something that can be reduced to about four lines. On your podcast, do you have a theme on your podcast? It's called Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, but again, that's just a way in. Um, really, it quickly gets away from that. I would say the theme that's emerging more than anything else is trying to dispel the notion that people who've had success have arrived at something that's going to bring them everlasting joy. Oh boy, what a good theme that is. And I know so many people who thought, if only I get rich and famous, all my problems will be solved. Yeah. And then they got rich and famous and they realized they had more problems than they had before. Yeah. And and one of the things that I've seen, um, you know, again, I can mostly speak to comedy, but a lot of comedians, uh, you see it, they've, they weren't good athletes. They weren't, uh, they didn't get the girl uh, or didn't get the guy. They have honed this uh, compensatory, these mechanisms, this, you know, they're, they're, they felt vulnerable. And so they developed all of this stuff, um, quick reactions, jokes, things that, it, masking techniques, mm -hmm. and that's comedy. And they developed it all over years and years and years to help protect themselves. And then what happens is they think, when I become a famous comedian, um, I'm never gonna feel rejection again. I'm never gonna worry about money. Uh, I'm going to fix all the problems in my childhood because I'm going to have arrived. And it's the myth of the mountaintop. If I could get to the mountaintop, you know, Cary Grant could never have had any problems. Mm -hmm. He was Cary Grant. Mm. What a what a stupid thing to say. It's just not true. And um, getting people, I like people to talk about. Uh, I like that. Obviously, I love it when they're funny, and I there's a lot of humor and and laughing. But then getting them to talk about uh, 
what they're struggling with now. And I, and I like it when people are, I think one of the things that's endlessly fascinating is we have an envy culture, especially with celebrity. So um, with your career, people would say, well, Alan Alda's in the 1% of the 1% of the 1% of the 1%, like biggest TV show of all time, uh, and this amazing movie career and just revered, you'd have no problems. They don't understand that today you got up and you're worried about things and you're wondering, how am I gonna do today? Mm -hmm. The great Conan O'Brien's coming in. <laughs> <laughs> I actually I love wondered, that that's a big laugh. <laughs> I, I actually wondered how your hair was gonna be combed. Yeah, yeah, I, I try to behave today. But no, just that, that um, we're all, you know, you'd have been one of the people when I was 20 who I would just think, well, he's got no problems. I would just think that. Uh, I wouldn't understand. And now I understand. Yeah, that's so good. And it's good you're bringing it out and your guests on the podcast because it's a, it's really much better to know that we're all fellow humans in this. And I know so many people who have really hit it in business as well as show business. Right. And they have the same kind of problems. They have to grow old with grace. They have to fight disease. They have to find a way to relate to their spouses that's better than what they got now. Mm -hmm. And everybody has human problems. Yeah, and I think that we, as a culture, I see this all the time on uh, you know, these, these shows like... Uh, Forensic Files. It's a show that's about, um, you know, these, these terrible crimes and murders, and they're all real, and they're narrated, and they all start the same way. They all say, you know, uh, Joe Brewer had it all. You know, <laughs> yeah. he was, and they always say he was living the American dream. And then mm. they tell you, you think, oh, well, let's hear about Joe Brewer. And they said, he had a really nice, and then they show you his um, car. His car. He was like, oh yeah, he had a Dodge Dart, you know. <laughs> he had a Dodge Dart. And uh, he was on his second marriage and um, he was living in this nice trailer park. <laughs> and they say he had the American dream until it all went south. And then he commits a murder. And the reason they tell this story the same way every time is that we're all children and we all like a fairy tale or, or a morality tale. We all like, he had it all, but then he slipped up and he fell and plummeted to the depths. And I think, um, I don't know if it's just peculiar to America, but we love the rise and the fall and we yeah. like it to be simple and childishly simple. So when you try and tell people nuance of, how's it going, Conan? Well, you know, um, this was good, but then this was rough, and then this was hard, but then I enjoyed this, but then this is a little difficult, and you know, I'm just worried about my, I hope my son's good with this, but I hope my daughter, and mm -hmm. it's very complicated, And but overall I'm quite happy, but some concern about this and some concern about that. No, if it, God forbid anything ever happened to me, they would say, he had it all, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and then his fatal mistake, he went on Alan Alda's and podcast. And destroyed his whole career. Yeah, and it destroyed well, him. They're yelling at me from the control room. Before Why? I let you destroy yourself further, I have to come to the end of our conversation. Oh, this has been, fan I, I, you know, I'll, I'll come back. I really love this. this I love fantastic. it too. But maybe I'll come on your show if you ever want me. That's never happening. Uh, okay, well... <laughs> 
Look, you, I you can't know, afford I'm just you. Just a normal person. I can't. I can't afford you. I uh, could come on and cry. Yeah, I would love if it would be on the on my show. That would be fantastic. Well, before you go from this show, I yeah. have seven quick questions. You mind taking a chance with these questions? They're not embarrassing or no, anything. No, I'm straight. They're, 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 oh, I just I <laughs> that wasn't on the, the first... number one question. Okay. <laughs> number one, what's the hardest thing you've ever tried to explain to someone? I would say uh, death. Death is a hard one to explain. When when your children at a young yeah. age ask you, what's that, is, that all about? That's very tough. I think um, I would like, before you, I explain it to you, I need someone to explain it to me because I still don't understand it. Yeah. Well, we'll get into that when we're on your show and we can really put a real <laughs> low point on the whole series. <laughs> on all series. this here, and the topic is death. <laughs> Number two, how do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? I make kind of a quizzical face and try to say, really, because I, I think I heard it the other way, and I try to give them an out. Yeah. I try to give them room to maneuver to the side or to keep their dignity and maybe reconsider that the earth might be round. <laughs> what's, the, uh, what's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? I think when you asked me about my hair. Oh, <laughs> sounds that like was... everybody'd be asking you about No, no, that. no. Everyone else has thought it's beautiful and perfectly natural. And for you to call it peculiar and make it a centerpiece of this show uh, <laughs> is the most shocking thing that anyone's ever said to me. I'm trying to fix that nice guy thing. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Trust me. You've done that in many movies. <laughs> <laughs> How do you stop a compulsive talker? I don't know if there's any better way invented yet, and I think it's one of the great uh, advances, is the cell phone. You take it out and pretend you somebody's say, calling you? you? Yeah, because they don't have to ring, they can buzz. And oh. it's a buzz that no one has to hear. Oh, this is great. Nobody so, ever said this. And this didn't, think about it, this didn't happen in the 50s, 60s. I mean, for all, most of humanity, this was not a possible way to end it. But now... Someone can keep going on and on and on. So you can talk into the phone. You can say something like, what? Is she still breathing? Yes. I'll yes. be right there. Yeah. What you do is you keep it, you keep your phone in your back pocket or in your side pocket. Uh, put your finger up when someone's yeah, yeah, going yeah. on for the ninth minute <laughs> yeah. about the kind of drywall they're using in their new apartment. <laughs> and then you take it out and you put it up to your, your ear and you go, you just put your finger up and you go, yes, yes. Hold on a second. What's that? What's that? Really? and fired the gun five times. <laughs> I'm on my way. And then you say, I'm sorry, there's a problem at home. And you rush out and no one, and so, I mean, that's something that people complained about this new era of technology. This is a Use great, your phone. Oh, and I don't know, you should do this because I know you get bothered a lot. Use it at an airport. If I'm left alone and I see people headed my way and they yeah. want to take selfies and all that, and maybe I'm not quite in that mood, I pick up the phone and I just start talking and I wish I had a recording of the stuff I said because it's pure babble. I'll pick up the phone and my assistant has seen me do it and I'll say things like, no, 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 we'll get more corn. Get six bushels of corn. Yes, get it over to Hannity's. He'll know what to do. Yeah, Mulroney has the idea, but make sure that we trade it for the rice, see? And people, <laughs> people back away. I can imagine them backing away. They do back away. <laughs> Next question. How do you like to start up a true conversation with someone who you don't know at a dinner party? I don't like to ask them what they do. Right, I don't either. The best way is to go off of something that they've said that intrigued me a little bit. Obviously, that's the best way. But um, 
I always think a really kind of nice, simple question that starts things off if you're at a real cold start is where are you from? Hmm. Because that's not a status question. That's not asking them, what do you do? How much do you make? You know, there's mm-hmm. nothing implied. Um, and and I've actually gotten into really good conversations. I do that a lot with Uber drivers or Lyft drivers. Uh, is uh, That's nice. I like to talk to them about where they're from. Do they have family there? And I see them, or if they're from, you know, Eastern Russia. And I, I, I just, I, I'm curious about, well, what was that like? And how long have you been here? And do you have family back there? Are you bringing them over here? And so that's a nice way to do it, I think. What gives you confidence? Assuming uh, you have some. Yeah, <laughs> I did before I came in here and you shredded <laughs> me to pieces. I think age, I think oh, getting yeah, older. Hey, oh. I think uh, I was lacking in confidence when I was younger and every year I get a little more confident. I don't think in a arrogant way, but I get more confident about, sounds strange, counterintuitive. I know how much I don't know. Uh, And when you're young, you think you know a lot more than you do know. And Mm -hmm. as you get older, you're you're aware of how much I don't know and you relax into it. Oh, that's well said, that's really nice. Very nice. Last question. What book changed your life? Wow. Man, what, that's, I'm going to go with Dianetics, L. Ron Hubbard. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Suddenly it got really quiet. (laughs) And Alan, I'd like you to come with me. There's a meeting we're having. Thank you. Yes. I'd I'd like to be hooked up to the machine. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to hook you up to a machine. Uh, I, man, that, I am hard pressed to think, you know, I don't know. That is unfair. I don't know that I can say, I love books. I don't know that I can say one book that changed my life. I will say a book that was very important to me is the most of uh, uh, most of S.J. Perlman, uh, which was a collection of essays. And I, my dad loved S.J. Perlman. And so I read it and realized this is really funny, really funny. And this guy is very smart. And these were written in the 30s and the 40s. And it had some great images in it, just terrific images and very funny. And I remember reading that and thinking, comedy is something smart people can do. Uh, so, uh, boy, I've noticed that. Yeah. I'm so glad you came in for this was, a uh, chat. This was, uh, are you kidding? Uh, this is uh, a pleasure, uh, real pleasure for me. And I will, I'd love to come back again, or maybe we continue this on my show. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'll get cool. back out here to New York and we'll hook you up to the machine. <laughs> I'll start insulting your hair and we'll see how you there like There's enough to insult. <laughs> oh, there's enough for me to work with there. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks Tony. so much. This was great. It was really great. Thank you. This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. This episode was made possible by our presenting sponsor, Discovery. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. 
For more information about the Alda Center, please visit aldacenter.org. Conan is one of the great wits of our time, and he's assembled an amazing team of people around him who help support his TV show, his podcast, and, of course, Conan Without Borders. To find out all the ways you can get your Conan fix, visit teamcoco.com. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our executive producer, Sarah Chase, and our associate producer, Gene Shermay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, our tech guru is Allison Costin, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. And don't forget, you can always say, Alexa, play Clear and Vivid on Apple Podcasts. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. We've started something new on Clear and Vivid. It's called Patreon, and it allows you to directly support us and engage with us in a much closer way. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid, here's what you'll find. For as little as $2 a month, listeners of Clear and Vivid can get exclusive behind-the-scenes access. You can find video, extra content, bonus episodes, and all sorts of fun stuff, including behind-the-scenes pictures. And for those of you who have seven questions of your own for Mr. Alan Alda, you might find some answers there, too. Now, you don't have to subscribe for as little as $2 a month to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen to the show and support us by hearing the ads. But you can get all this extra material if you do decide to become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work at the Alda Center for Communicating Science. Give Patreon a try. That's patreon.com slash clear and vivid. Bye-bye. We're about to start our seventh season of Clear and Vivid, and it's going to be an amazing season. The, the, the lineup of guests we have is spectacular. We have magical performers like Tom Hanks and Paul McCartney and the wonderful Betty White. Betty and I chatted together just a couple of days after her 98th birthday, and she, she's just adorable. And I talk with skilled communicators like Bill Nye, the science guy, and Science Friday's Ira Flato. And I get some of their tips about how they communicate complicated things. And we're planning a live event with the psychologist and author Steven Pinker. And when I say live event, I mean it'll be recorded live in front of an audience at the 92nd Street Y in New York. And you can still get tickets to come see it if you go to the 92Y website. We'll also do a show on the meeting I had recently with a giant Pacific octopus in the company of the writer, Cy Montgomery, where she told me about this and showed me this astonishing ability she had to connect with other animals. And I talked with the author, Cleo Stiller, about what it means to be a modern man and how to get to be it. Next week, we're going to give you an actual taste of what's to come when Graham and Sarah and Jean and I sit down to preview some of our favorite moments from Season 7 of Clear and Vivid. And that season begins February 25th. I hope you'll be with us. <laughs>